Ooh, yes, it's starting now. Well, uh, we've touched on uh, two things. Um, your name again is a J Al Alyosha. Alyosha, right. The J is not there, is it? Alyosha. Oh, wait a minute. The J is actually an I sound. All right. Okay. That's where I've gotten confused. Okay. Alyosha. All right. Okay, we had already just gotten started talking about um, watching the arising and the passing away. And then you mentioned that at the end of your meditation setting or sitting that you don't remember much of anything that happened during that period of time. Yeah, I mean, I, I sometimes I realized that there was like an arising and there was a passing. But it's all very abstract. Like I don't feel my like I don't feel myself relating to that much. Uh, like if I think back on how did myself kind of play a role in that, then there's not much there. It's just uh, pretty much the raw sensation. So maybe I think that's that's a good thing. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's just something that came up that I was thinking about lately. Um, because like I said before. Um, a while ago, it could also sometimes happen that I could not remember because I was just dozing off or I was too relaxed, maybe. But uh, right now, I feel like that's not the case anymore. It's actually changed a little bit that it's not maybe as blissful anymore as it was before, but it's more, it's, it's yeah. still, it's still a little blissful, but it's more clarity or more sober in a way. Yeah. Okay, you're using the pronoun it a lot, yeah. and I assume that you know what it is that you're describing. Um, let's uh, talk about those adjectives instead of the noun yeah. uh, for, for a bit um, and understand. Um, we can start with it this way, that things change at various frequencies is like everything uh, is in constant motion. Everything is in change. And some of it is at such a high frequency that it's completely undetectable by any means possible. The detection takes longer than the event. Uh -huh. Okay, so uh, that's pretty fast. And then things seem to not change much at all, like it, it takes centuries or more to go through a cycle or sometimes millions of years. But this uh, time frequency shift that we're talking about is just merely a human concept. But that there are various frequencies to things that things arise and they pass away. Sometimes they're too fast for us to see, and sometimes they're too slow for us to see. And so what we're going to start doing is going into kind of a sweet spot 
so that we can begin to see the arising and the passing away. And then as our skills develop and as our uh, insight increases, we can expand that frequency range into lower and lower frequencies and into higher and higher frequencies. Okay. Now, in that regard, we can say that the um, uh, looking at things that are going at a very, very fast rate would be what I would consider then the speed of the mind. That it doesn't do us much value to uh, work on or develop skills that deal with things that are faster than the mind. An example of that is building a camera that'll take a billion frames a second. So that you can actually with that camera see the speed of light as it progresses through a, a Coke bottle because they've got a, um, a video of that on YouTube. And yet the engineers who built that camera. Are still unhappy dudes because they can't build a camera that's 10 times that fast yet. <laughs> All right, so they're working at it at a level that's too far into high speed and you could say then that historians are too far into the low speed and so there's kind of a sweet spot and one of those would be in the sense of uh, a very low frequency would be you're arising and passing away in the sense of a human life but that's going to happen it's in a frequency OK, but as we begin to acknowledge and see the things that are in the realm of that which can be seen and understand, we can begin to extrapolate from that. And what I mean by extrapolate is like in mathematics, they have a, a proof and what they call an iterative proof. That if you can prove it's true for this number and prove for the next number and prove for the next number and prove for the next number, how many times do we have to prove it for the next number after that before we get the point that we can stop now? We've got enough proof. Okay, that's what we mean by iterative. So if we can see really what's going on at one particular speed and then gain this, uh, the frequencies around it and see what's going on with that, then eventually we can extrapolate that to the very, very ends in both directions because it's the same laws of physics involved. An example of that would be that it doesn't take long for the keyboard of a laptop to get dirty if it's already in an outdoor or a somewhat dirty environment where there's a lot of dust in the air, then the keyboard and the screen is going to have to be dirty. But even in a clean house, you still have to clean the keyboard and clean the monitor. But also that whole um, keyboard is going to die with or without the laptop's death going along at the same time. You see, so we're talking about that everything is arising and passing away. And that what, what we can understand is, is that if everything is arising and passing away, then the things that I like and want to keep from passing away, because I can't stop them from passing away, I better be ready to let them go when they do pass away. 
And so this is really the uh, the rationale or the reason for what's really going on in that fourth tetrad of the Anapanasati Sutta, which starts with um, Anicca, seeing that things are in turmoil. And then we begin to see things as not just in turmoil, but everything is actually rotting. Everything is rotting away from the state that it used to be in. That's kind of not so the arising then would be the seeing the Anisha, seeing everything occurring as it begins. But then we begin to see everything occurring as it's ending, arising and passing away. And then we begin to understand just how dead things are that do pass away. And this is an important point about uh, uh, our own past, that we use our memories to keep things alive that really are dead and belong dead and in the past. Now, some people will contra that, contradict that with, um, oh, well, he who forgets history is doomed to repeat it, or he who does not know history is doomed to repeat it. And this is exactly what we're kind of getting at. He who is doomed to dig around in the past is therefore doomed to keep digging around in the past and missing the present moment. <laughs> and so we can look at it from both ways. And the way that we're looking at it is, is that if we can see the arising and passing away and get the point about what's really going on, now we can, because we've learned the lesson from history, drop the history. We've got the history lesson now that we've got the lesson because we saw what was going on. The reason why people talk about history the way that they do is that, oh, we've got to go back and study old things because we weren't there in the first place. And so we study it as old dead stuff, right? What we're talking about here with the arising and passing away and the uh, secession of everything is to see that, yes, I can gain what I need to know out of this as I see it dying. And when it's dead, I can bury it. I don't have to keep go digging it back up to get some value out of it. That when it's dead, it's dead already. And I can feel good enough about that I did get the lesson that I needed out of that. Okay, so from that perspective, we're saying that this is what we're going to be practicing when the mind is really fit for work. Is that we're going to be watching the things that we do have uh, are rising and passing away. But. Because the mind is already in a state fit for work, what that means is, is that we've already done the work necessary to clean the mind out of all of the unwholesome things. So the things that we're looking at now that are arising and passing away have more of a quality of wholesome, more quality of real more quality of non-delusional but actual investigation it's funny like that that we know that uh uh to get the mind uh fit for work means that the mind is now fit to do a proper investigation so the question is well how do we get the mind fit 
The answer is by doing an investigation as best we can do. And when we find something, we throw it out and we keep purifying it until we get an investigation that's, that's worth doing. They do that, by the way, with purification of gold. Do you know how they purify gold? No, no idea. You know that it's pretty heavy stuff, right? Like down there with lead. It's even to the point that if you had lead and gold mixed together, because that's the one that's the most difficult, you're still going to heat them up to their liquid state. And then over time in that liquid state, the gold is going to sink to the bottom and all the other impurities, including the lead, are going to be forming as dross on the top of the, the gold. That's why the goldsmith is there with his little scoop taking that dross off the gold, right? So the activity that's going on then is what we would call our right effort. And as we are purifying the mind, we're uh, taking that stuff out. Once we have it out, once the lead and uh, the phosphorus and all the other stuff that uh, that we would call in our uh, uh, analogy here, the unwholesome thoughts, all we have left now is the gold to study. And that's the, the, the reality of the situation. After we remove all of the unwholesome thoughts, which is just basically old dead things from our past, things that really don't belong in this mix. Once we are finished with that, then we can check out things and see how reality actually operates. And that the way that it operates is that it arises and passes away and arises and passes away. Every stage play has an act two. And even the one act plays are still the tiny little acts that are just all strung together one after another without making a uh, big scene change or whatever. Then in fact, the act changes because the scene changes in those things. But the point that I'm making is, um, is that we can see that a show is something that's nothing but constant change, constant motion. And we get involved, we get in, almost entertained by that. That this is one of the things that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa I've heard mentioned is, is that the Dhamma, the reality of the situation, is quite entertaining. It's really worthwhile paying attention to what's going on, all of this arising and passing away. And we can see it at various levels. One of the levels that we can see is at the very fast level of our own minds. The thought comes up and then it changes and then another thought comes up or maybe they, uh, a thought that we dwell on and we keep thinking about it. What we need to actually look at is, is that, oh, we're just in a big circle here. We don't keep our mind focused on one thing that we spin around it. An example of that is writing an email to the boss, right? That's an example of we thinking about writing an email to the boss and yet we're all over the place. We're just in a big cycle of stuff. And so beginning to recognize that the mind runs in these circles, that we keep coming back to the same thoughts over and over and over again. And we also keep coming back to the same feelings that we had before. So we begin to now see the thoughts as they're arising and passing away. And these are already wholesome thoughts, but they're still changing. 
everything keeps changing or you change something (laughs) (laughs) oh that's that was my bad sorry yeah you can change it again (laughs) (laughs) i was just changing uh to full screen yeah sorry actually no you changed to a group scene ah okay that was that all right let's see um so uh, a bit of a technical question there so um the arising and passing that that applies to like uh uh the general hum of things like let's say like a blissful feeling but could it also be applied to uh lately i feeling like these pulsing like sometimes in my body i feel like a very quick like and um it's not my pulse because it would be I would be having a pulse of over a hundred probably. So at first I thought it, it was my pulse and I was checking, like, is this my pulse? No, it's, it's way faster than the pulse. Mm-hmm. And I feel that uh, in various places in the body is that is every pulse is that an arising and then if the pulse goes away, is that a passing event or is that something else? Um, I'm not sure. And it's not important that I know for sure what that pulsing is. What is worthwhile, though, is is that you know it and that it's worth looking at. Okay, that's the thing that we're beginning to understand is, is that this stuff is worth noting. Without. Um, let, let us say in being in a state of not liking it. Yeah, that's, that's pretty neutral, I would say. Yeah. Okay, because if you don't like it, then it takes on a different quality. It takes on an emotional quality to it that's really not in that arising and passing away. I would say right? it's, it's... And so in that regard, you can say that that's how you can relinquish that because the relinquishment is relinquishing our feelings about things that are arising and passing away. I would say it's more of a curiosity thing. Like I, I, I kind of noticed that I'm like, hmm, interesting. What's what is that? Let's have a look. And so in that way, it's it's more maybe not completely neutral, but it's like, ah, oh, there's something happening. Let's let's have a look at that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That's probably describes it. That's an important point that you're making, because um, it is very very akin to the unwholesome state of doubt. Because doubt adds, uh, adds agitation and worry, but joy plus doubt can lead to just curiosity, that you're happily curious. And part of the reason for that difference is, is because now you're happily curious in the, in the pursuit of it, and that's what you're doing. To where when we're in a state of doubt, we feel that we have to know. Now we're grasping and clinging at the outcome. We need to know, but curiosity is not in the state of needing to know. It's just in the state of, um, uh, let us say, happy investigation. Mm-hmm. And this is a really excellent place to be, uh-huh. being in a state of curious investigator. Mm-hmm. 
And then we can begin to see the cycles of things. Now, one of the examples that I gave was the, exact, uh, the example of the lifetime of a laptop is mm -hmm. several years. And that when the laptop dies, generally it's not the laptop because there is no such thing as the laptop. That is probably some component in the laptop. Mm -hmm. Could be the motherboard crack which means that it's just a little crack in the motherboard, but it's going to prevent the whole thing from booting up. Or it could be um, a fuse, or it could be a bad battery that uh, we don't recognize first off that it's a bad battery, or other things like this. And so when the laptop dies, it's not a laptop that dies. It needs some investigation, and most people don't have the skills to do that, and the service centers generally don't either. <laughs> I know because on this island here, I probably know uh, I'm more of a technical expert at laptops and, and uh, PCs than any of the shops in town. I know because I've been to all of them and any <laughs> solve any problem that I've ever had that I couldn't solve, they couldn't solve it either. <laughs> and in fact, they generally made it worse. And so the point then is, is that that's kind of the way that the mind is also. That sometimes we know that something has broken, but we don't know what the actual precise cause of it is. And we don't have the skills to do the diagnosis. Okay. And so in that way with the curiosity, sometimes the curiosity is going to work wonders and you're going to figure something out and we can call that insight. And sometimes that curiosity is going to go lacking and you're not going to get the answer. The question is, does now that um, curiosity rot into doubt? <laughs> Because if it does, then there you go with the cycle of arising and passing away again. Okay, so these are the rising and passing aways that we want to start looking at is the change of our attitudes and the change in the thoughts that we have. And when we see something now, we've got new information. How is that going to change how we're operating here? Okay, so. Um, what we can do then is um, there is a paradox and the paradox is the distinction that uh, I have seen the psychotherapist and mostly the neurologist make of uh, the distinction between slow and fast thinking to where fast thinking, intuitive thinking will need only a little bit of information very quickly coming up with the result. An example of that would be when you see someone's face, you can tell immediately what, what kind of mood that they're in, whether it's angry or uh, depressed or whatever like that, if, if you're looking, okay? But other things like a math problem, like 17 times 22, may in fact uh, require a whole set of procedures to get the answer to that. Okay, like one of the procedures is getting into our memory about what is a procedure for multiplication of two double digit numbers. 
and how do we slide the things around to get the decimal points and all of that. So once we get the algorithm that we need to do this mathematics, now we've got to start applying it to the, each one of the numbered pairs until we uh, get a little another formula at the bottom that we can then do some additions with. So that's the way that most people are taught multiplication. Uh, and most people, when they are doing multiplication, they don't even recognize that different kind of thinking between a procedural working things out versus an instant recognition. The fast part. Now, what the neuroscientists, it seems, are missing is the connection between these two kinds of thinking. And um, uh, but first off, we can point out that um, it is surprising how accurate it, uh, it is, this instant thinking, this um, hunch, this um, um, instant knowledge is. In fact, because most people live their whole lives that way, it's pretty good stuff. It'll get you there more than half the time. And half the time your face is in the mud. <laughs> and um, uh, one of the ways of talking about the interrelationship with this is the way that um, um, karate, um, the martial artist, by the time that they're black belts, they learn to do a, what's called a kata. And that's the Japanese word for it. And it's the same thing that is done in Tai Chi. Have you ever heard of Tai Chi? You know what they're, yeah. you know, <clears throat> okay, whether they're doing this. Okay, so everything is done very, very specifically, methodically with Tai uh, with the Tai Chi. But a lot of people have only heard that Tai Chi is actually a martial art, and it's the way that they learn it. So karate does the same thing. We have to slow down every movement to get it correct. Guess what? They do that with music also. A pianist is not going to be able to rip through a, a fast passage. If they rip through it over and over go over again, they'll still mess it up after they've ripped through it a thousand times. What we need to do is to slow it down and get it correct. And slow it down and get it correct and do it correct over and over and over again. And then that builds up the, um, let us say, the neurons that we need then to be able to do that thing fast. And so we can actually program and then it, uh, our intuitions. And that this is actually what the Buddha is talking about, but he doesn't have that kind of um, vocabulary. But in fact, I'm beginning to think that what we can do is we can actually add uh, instincts into the whole the term of Sama Sankapa in the realm of uh, we're training the mind to come out of the loser's mentality, out of the victimhood, into the winner, which means that we're actually training our instinctual reaction to things because we instinctively react as if we were a victim. 
instead of instantly reacting as if we're the champion here, we've got this wired. Anybody who comes to meet me is just merely another servant of mine <laughs> or just another uh, equal friend. That no, uh, but uh, in the Western world, we have a whole concept of a hierarchy to where you've got a whole bunch of people that are better than you and a whole bunch of people who are less than you. And we learn those associations so that we can get it instantly, really fast. We're really fast at judging other people. We call that sort of um, uh, first impression. Okay. But our first impressions, we don't understand that that is just a simple way of looking at a little bit of data and and have already built in an algorithm that will process that data and come up with a, an answer very quickly. And that part of the way that that happens is, is that when we're presented with a new question, we don't give a, a new answer that the new answer to a new question requires what I've just mentioned of the slow methodical thinking of thinking our way through it. But in fact, most people will give a very quick answer to a brand new question because they actually will answer a different question through association. So they'll take the question that you ask, associate it with something else, and then answer that question. And that happens in the mind within a couple of mind moments. It's really, really fast in the mind that we do that. And so it's really, really valuable for us to start slowing things down to begin to see how we decide things, how we make things up, and that we can, in fact, uh, uh, increase our fast thinking or our intuitive thinking in two ways, not just one. The way that we would normally think it is, is that, oh, I just need more data. But there's also, no, we need to change the way that we process that data. Because often more data is just going to give us the same answer to the same question that was really an answer to a different question, not to the question at hand. Right? And so what we need to start doing is to actually begin to look and decide what's the real question here? What am I really looking for? If I'm really curious, what am I curious about? Let's not go looking for something that's easy to find and then decide that what I actually need to know is that. Let's make sure that we're getting what we're really looking for. This is why the investigation process requires many, many repetitive points to keep going over it and over and over again. And as we do this in, in the practice of Anapanasati, um, we're actually beginning to change the way that the mind works. Because in that mind moment, let us just pick one out while we're sitting in there in meditation. In that mind moment, an unwholesome thought comes up. The question is, why does it come up? How is the mind leaning in that direction? And the answer to that would be because it's been leaning in that direction for a long time. Okay, well, let us see if we can change that thought. And over time, by changing the thought and keep changing the thought, we can change the way that the mind leans. In other words, we by 
actually practicing anapanasati and removing the unwholesome thoughts, that gives us a chance then to kind of reprogram, to build some new neurons. Um, uh, or another way of saying it is uh, these new neurons now, because they're now physical neurons, they're now part of the instinct, the instinctual neuronic way that we operate instantly. This is also the way that we're going to be able to operate now because we've reprogrammed it, but we reprogram it very slowly, very methodically, over and over and over again. And we continue to do that even when we get the mind completely free from the hindrances. Now we're going to continue to practice by developing those skills and a kind of a way to, to ask the question uh, or to do that investigation would be in the form of the question, well, how is my sati? Is my sati right now unremitting? Can I remember and remember and remember and remember? Now that's, uh, we can actually talk about two different kinds of memory. One kind of memory is what you would call long-term memory that has a whole lot of data in it. And the other kind of memory is kind of a short-term, um, kind of a waking up. This is the sati, to actually remember to wake up. Now, here's the thing about the long-term memory is, is that it is more emotional-based than it is data-driven. And so when we think about the past, we don't, mem we don't reminisce about the past with the way that we are feeling right now. We reminisce about the past the way that we felt in the past. So if you remember something that you did that you know was wrong, whenever you remember that, you'll wince. <clears throat> because it brings that old memory back fresh into the mind again and makes it real in the here now. That's delusional because it's not in the here now. You are not the person who did that thing. So that wincing or that uh, oh no or that uh, intense not liking about something that happened in the past, we need to be able to see those thoughts. See it when we wince in the beginning so that we can say, oh, I don't have to wince about that. That's not who I am. And then later, as we are wincing, we can say, hey, I don't have to be doing this. And then uh, later than that, we can bring that same uh, old past memory back. And now we don't have to wince. We can come right up to the edge of wincing and then stop because that wincing takes several mind moments to go through it. And so we can, at that speed that we're talking about, start seeing these microscopic little changes that come with these thoughts that are, that in fact, thinking of the past will bring feelings unless we're very, very mindful. That in fact, that's, um, uh, um, Samedo talked about this one time to the, to a group of monks. This was something that was not in in public uh, uh, conversation, but with, within a group of, um, of monks. He was talking about reflection, wise reflection, 
because if you don't understand wise reflection properly, then it looks like that he's contradicting what the Buddha talks about. Okay, the Buddha is talking about dwelling in the past because the dwelling in the past or thinking about the past interferes with the present and it interferes with the future. But once we've gotten past that and we can dwell in wholesome thoughts with the thoughts wholesome and with the feelings wholesome, we can go back and inspect the past or we can just reminisce and float into the past and then recognize that. And recognize again, that's not who I am. That's in the past. It's dead already. Rather than remembering something from the past and then bringing up the feelings from the past. Right? In other words, we can be free from the memories or uh, the feelings of the memories. Once we have the mind cleaned out. And now recollections of the past is not a problem. And because it's not a problem, this is what gives rise to the point that many old monks, even though that they're old, and in fact, a lot of old people, not necessarily monks, have much more crystal clear memories of their early childhood than they did when they were just merely an adult. Okay, that uh, but that can happen. A lot of people will, will come in and say, you know, I used to not remember much of anything that happened before the age of six. But now it seems like I remember it step by step every day. I remember so much. OK, so this is what we mean is, is that we can clean that emotional baggage out of the past and leave just what's left of the data. Without having the emotional baggage. But this is something that uh, has to develop as a skill. And in fact, in this way, now we're taking in the old memories as new input, almost in the same way that we would see an object that is new with the eyes. Okay, the problem with the memory system is, is that it, um, uh, you know that there are six senses in, in the teaching of the Buddha. There are five senses that have to do with the outside world. And then there is an inner sense that is a duplication of those same five items. In other words, if you if if there is something that you cannot detect with the eyes, the ears, the touch, the taste, and, and the other, uh, you know, the five senses. Smell, that's the one I left out. Okay, if you cannot uh, experience something with one of those five senses, then you cannot record it in the memory, nor can you play it back. The only thing that you can play back was some input that was put in for recording. And the inputs from the recording is like the input devices. An example of that in the real world for electronics would be a microphone versus a, a camera okay unfortunately nobody's ever developed smell-o-vision yet nor have they uh, uh developed a television that give that will caress you or poke you in the in the chest with a knife to give you the sensation of being stabbed while you're getting the visual image on the screen of being stabbed right that all the television has are those two senses 
but the human has five senses and we store things in all of those five senses but then anything that we can remember has to come back to us in those same five senses and when it does come back to us the poly word for that is salayatana the atana is the actual five senses and the salayatana are the internal five senses that are let us say uh not quite very good mirror images of the actual five senses that our memories in fact are pretty shoddy uh, our memories are shoddy for several reasons one is is that we didn't get all the data in the first place all we got of what happened was what we saw and heard basically of it through the senses so we've already lost most of the data before we even start the memory process when we put it in memory we also put in there the feelings that we have because that's also part of the touch feel sensation so we add that into the mix so if you don't like something when it happens when you remember it you won't like it when you remember it just like you didn't like it when it happened right and if you really like something when it happened then when you remember it you'll feel the same way in this regard the feeling becomes more important than the memory itself how can we detach that memory system into the have so that we can actually get the vision and get the hearing and remember what actually happened without all of this emotional baggage but there's worse we forget sometimes we forget and often what we forget is the data we forget details and all that's left is the feeling and our data gets really sketchy and then worse than that when we go to get this data um once it's stored that way what that is called in nepali is uh, uh sankara and it's often uh, translated as um, a heap or a pile uh, but I'm giving a more detailed explanation of it so that Sama San, uh, excuse me that that uh, Sankara actually is useful when we process data when we bring in new data when we bring in new data and we are confused and we don't know what that data is what we will do is we will go into our memory bank and get a similar situation out and then plug that into the salyatana rather than the actual input data or that will mix the two so that we actually bastardize our own understandings okay this actually is in the Pali. This is the the um, uh, Paticca Samapada that we're talking about, about actually how the mind works, that the um, the consciousness or the Vinaya, the eye, the eye has an object that it sees when it gets inside into the Salayatana, it's been transformed into one of the things that has been transformed is by giving it a name. 
what name do we give it? A name that we know that's familiar already, even though the name may not be important at all. The name we use in our understanding will be the name that we do know. This is what neuroscience is beginning to figure out with this fast memory that remember that I mentioned about uh, or excuse me that fast thinking is is that we when we get presented with something new that we don't know the answer to, we'll just answer something that's close. The Buddha knew that 2500 years ago when the neuroscientists are just beginning to figure it out. And I find that quite amusing. So <laughs> um, this way that the mind works then is, is that we add an emotional baggage a little bit or a lot to any new thing that we see. The question is, can you catch yourself doing that? Can you observe how you create your reality? Can you recognize when you don't know something that you can leave it as I don't know that rather than answering I know what it is because it's like something that I do know. That's the mistake that we make and the neuroscientists are beginning to see that very clearly that we don't know the answer to a particular issue will answer something that we find is close. And the mind does that within two mind seconds or two mind moments, about a fifth of a second or so. Okay, so can we watch that stuff? Can we see it? And can we slow it down and pick it apart so that we can choose more carefully how we're going to name things and how we're going to feel about it? because we have that choice if we would stop automatic pilot mm -hmm. and start operating with wisdom to start looking at what we're doing. This is where we're coming back to now the arising and you passing away because the arising is the new item came into your field of view and it's passing away was the arising of what you made of it. <laughs> And the passing away of that is when it contacts you and now we're dealing with our own feelings rather than the actual object because we're now two, three, four steps away from the original object. So here's an example of that. Two people are standing on a street corner and down the street, someone they don't know is dressed in a particular way. In each of these two people who see that person uh, coming uh, in this direction, they have a completely different response to it based upon their past. Now, it does not matter exactly what the person's dressed like, but let's use the example of a nun's habit. And one of these guys standing here is a seminary candidate. And the other one, what went to Catholic uh, school when he was a child and got his hand spanked by a nun. So when these two guys see that nuns have it, they're going to have two completely different feeling responses to it. One's going to be um, uh, a positive response 
an eagerness response. I'm glad to see that the nuns are out. That reinforces that it's okay for me to go to seminary just because I saw a nun. The other one is going to see the nun and he and is going to remind him of his childhood. And he's going to bring up a whole lot of bad feelings about the nun. And he's going to hate her. To where the fact is, is that neither one of those guys know the person that's dressed in that nun's habit. And in fact, it may not be a nun's habit at all. It may be a um, Halloween costume or something. They don't know. But we do that instantly. This is what we mean by. Um, what What's the word for it? Instant recognition. That we just see things and we. Um, uh, our, our first impressions, right? Our first impressions are almost always wrong because we're not being impressed with the data we're getting. We're being impressed with something from our own past. And we make that substitution. Wow. If we can see us doing that, now we can use Anapanasati to be able to change it. So this is the value then is getting the mind fit for work so that we can see directly how things arise and pass away, how this sequence of events or a dependent origination, that this is dependent upon that. But that the salyantana, that which impacts us, is not always directly dependent upon what we actually saw. It's dependent upon what we make of it. And what we make of it is something out of our past. Okay. Until we get the mind completely wholesome. And then when we're completely wholesome, then we can see the non coming without bringing any emotional baggage at all. We don't even have to see her in the nun's habit. We can see her as a human without having to put the baggage of the nun's habit. And everybody carries some hab some baggage about nun's habits. I use that one example. I can use an SS uniform as another. Or how about a business suit in black and the guy's got really dark sunglasses on, like an X-Man or something, <laughs> okay? And then people are going to have different reactions to him. One's going to turn and run, and the other one is going to run, run right up to him, right? This is our first impressions, but we don't understand that our first impressions are built upon all the garbage that we have stored in the mind in a haphazard way. That it's not very accurate, and so it's not a good idea to deal with uh, with things uh, the way that we dealt with them in the past. It's better to use what you were calling then curiosity. That's the secret ingredient. Because doubt means that what I see now does not um, fit into what I remember. That's what doubt is is this new data does not fit my old data. What's going on here? Oh, poor me, I must be wrong. I'm not, you know, in the whole nine yards of that in a meditation hall that comes up. Am I in the right place? 
Am I doing this practice correctly? Is this a good teacher? You know, all of those kind of questions come up when it's doubt. Because the new information doesn't fit the old. But with Anapanasati, we're going to say, OK, let's deal with the new information and do some more investigation of that. Let's stop trying to put this new thing into the old bottle. Let's keep it new and continue to investigate it as it's new. And not only that, but now you have a complete choice about how you're going to feel about it because we're not operating under the habits of the old ways that we felt. In that regard, now we can plug, plug it in to the point of you can feel the way you want to feel rather than feeling the way that you've been told to feel or that you learned to feel or that you felt in the past. Then, in fact, when I say learn to feel and told to feel or feeling the way we did in the past, that's all the same thing. Because we were told how to feel when we were little kids, we we got enough information from our surroundings and we began to feel the way that our parents felt. This is called indoctrination. When we get doctored with the medicine that somebody else is taking, right? So we become indoctrinated. And what we can say now is, is that Anapanasati is unwinding that indoctrination so that we can begin to live more in the present moment with new data and new feelings rather than operate automatically by taking the new thing, comparing it with the past, bringing the old way that we felt and the old item up and make a new choice about the old item. That's often not even related to the new input data that we're getting. Let's stay with the real data. And so this is why we're practicing Anapanasati to remember to do that and the way that we start to develop that skill is recognizing that any hope, any thought that's unwholesome obviously came from the past because it can't come from the present moment. <laughs> it can't come from the present moment because the present moment is just fine. Thank you very much. It's quite wonderful and marvelous if you look at it correctly. So the way that we feel comes out of the past. If we are not aware of that, then we are bound to repeat that past. But if we can see it the way that it is, and oh, I feel this way now because I felt that way in the past, now I can choose to change the way that I feel right now. That you do have a choice about the way you feel. So I'll ask you like this then. If you could feel the way that you wanted to feel, how would you feel? Well, it seems like a trick question and a bit. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's not rhetorical. Think about it. If you could feel the way you wanted to feel, how would you feel? Not only is that not a trick question, it is possibly the only question that you need to keep asking over and over and over again right now. How do I feel and how would I like to feel? And then you can change it. If you can change the thought from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought, 
if you can, in fact, change your body to the point that you can take a deep breath in and out, then you can change your feelings. You can control them. You can feel the way that you want to feel. And how do we do that? Well, we go back to that point about wholesome versus unwholesome thoughts. That the way that you would want to feel, I assume, would be wholesome rather than rotten. So if we have a rotten thought that gives us a rotten feeling, maybe it's better to not have those rotten thoughts anymore about the past. And yeah. throw those things out and start having thoughts about what's happening now because what's happening now is quite nice. And so the wholesome thoughts about the moment would be actually experiencing taking air in experiencing breathing experiencing the touch of our hands and and i mean the the human body is so marvelous when we pay attention to what it's doing and it's a load of crap when we pay attention to what it can do in other words we are uh here's another way of looking at it intuitively we are all outside focused we're in the world of the world senses rather than being there right behind the senses. An example of that would be the difference between the cameraman in the studio and the way that he's framing the picture while he's filming versus the people who are watching it on the uh, YouTube or on the television. Because that audience is being manipulated by the cameraman. The way that he's framing it, he's, you're also being manipulated by the director of what kind of music and all of that other kind of stuff. And so one of the ways of learning to watch a movie for the uh, in a new way is stop being entertained by it the way that the director and the uh, cameraman wanted you to be entertained and start looking at what they're doing to entertain you. Start looking at the framing, start looking at the set, start looking at the makeup, start looking at uh, the way that the actors are moving and things like that, because that's the reality of it, not the entertainment value. But what we do is that we take the reality that's right there on the screen for us and we add our own emotions and we tell ourselves a story and we get involved with the plot rather than seeing each frame of the movie is just another new frame. Just watch the show, watch what the director is doing to make the show, rather than getting all emotionally involved with the movie. So, I mean, there is a difference then though between the wholesome thoughts or the wholesome content, and then also the, like you said, the, the framing and the relating to it. So the way mm -hmm. you're holding holding those in, let's say, consciousness. So instead of, uh, instead of like fusing with them, it's just like, yeah, perceiving them and uh, not being them. Is that something that you also? Oh, right, in fact, what we're beginning to talk about is, is that look at the way you frame things, just like the cameraman is framing things that they frame things so that you, some of the best parts that, um, uh, that are interesting are just right off camera, right off the screen. Right? They focus in on it. They don't stay in a panoramic view all the time. They come and focus in. 
right? We do that too. We don't take the panoramic view. We focus in or narrow in on something. All right, that's what I'm getting at is look at the way you frame things. Look at the way that you actually add to um, um, in. In one of the classes that I took in graduate school, uh, it was a class on uh, statistics and stochastic processes and uh, gamma functions and all of that kind of stuff. But the one thing that I got out of that course more than anything else is the teacher's insistence that the observer always bastardizes his own data. That it's not possible to do a real survey it can't be done. They've always got margins of error. That's where the gamma functions and stochastic processes come into is the fact that we're trying to get a handle on how wrong we are when we're observing stuff. But one of the things that can't be observed or let us say can't be really factored in very well is this kind of example. A bird watcher. When he goes out to watch birds, he's watching birds watch him. The birds are not going to behave the same way if he wasn't there. Just by him being there, they know he's there, and now he's going to subtly change the way the birds behave simply because he's there. Another example of that, an easy one, is that you want to watch a puppy. And you're just watching the puppy to see the puppy. I mean, you're just amused about watching the puppy come around until the puppy comes around your bare foot and starts gnawing on your instep or gnawing on your toe. And now it's no longer, you know, because now I've become involved. I've reframed the puppy walking mm. around. Yeah. Okay, so this is... <clears throat> yeah, that's that's something that I... I think I've noticed in the last few meditation sessions I had that there is this tendency to reflect on what's uh, like the there's the raw perception of things and then there's like the sometimes the urge like to to reflect on it and to kind of box it into a certain experience and then mm -hmm. kind of refrain refrain from that a little bit and I think that's that might also explain or maybe you can confirm this uh why it's for me so hard to kind of label what happened in the meditation because if i successfully refrain from that then there is only yeah, yeah very very raw information which is not you're going to not remember a whole lot of naming in that hour at the end exactly. of the hour if you don't do a lot of naming when exactly. nothing is happening you're not remembering anything there's yeah. nothing to remember. Isn't that marvelous? No, you don't like it. <laughs> I, 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 I uh, yeah, I, I think I like it. I was just unsure if that's that's productive. Like, uh, that's a good uh, use of my time there. Ah, that's the whole point, though. Is is that that what you just said comes out of that past? Okay, being productive. And what does the meaning of being productive, etc., and the feeling that comes with that? Like a rule, you should be productive, right? I give you right now 
honest to whatever, it's okay for you to be unproductive. The best meditation is unproductive. All right. Okay. Now, what do I mean by that unproductive? Well, what we basically mean by being productive is getting something. Mm-hmm. Making progress, getting a result. Getting some insight or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Getting an insight in this regard or um, uh, whatever. But the point is, is that we want something and then therefore put um, a value on production. Right. But if you don't want anything, then what value is production? Now, if you don't want anything, what that means is, is that everything already is okay. Everything is all right right now, the way that it is. It doesn't need anything produced to make right now any better. So if you can just sit down and call it meditation and just enjoy the moment, that is all we need to do is learn how to stop producing. And the way that we can do that here is by you beginning to see that being in the state of wanting and needing and have some sort of rule about production and productive is actually an unwholesome thought. And it leaves you with the feeling of failure because you didn't get what you thought you should have produced. And in fact, there is nothing to produce. This moment is already okay the way that it is. You're already in paradise. You don't have to go find some evil and throw it out of the paradise in order for it to be paradise. That was the mistake that Adam and Eve made, and it's in the Bible. It's just so juicy a story because the Christians get involved with the story itself and the um, the storyline and not get the point of the story. The point of the story is, is that because their, the fruit that they ate was the result of their judgments of knowledge of good and evil. In other words, they wanted to produce something by taking the evil and throwing it out of the garden. And by doing that process of production, they destroyed the garden. An example would be, oh, I want my garden here. I want it very beautiful. But this tree here has got a yellow leaf on it. And so I'm thinking that I don't like these yellow leaves. I'm going to take that tree up. And if I find any more trees around here that have yellow leaves, I'm going to pull them up too. Now, if I have that kind of attitude, how many trees am I going to have left in my garden? (laughs) And the only thing that I have done is I've changed the word yellow leaf, which just is just a nest. There it is, a yellow leaf, as opposed to I don't like yellow leaves. I am the one that adds the evil to the yellow leaf. And how did I learn to do that? I don't know, but I've been doing it. It came out of my past to go around labeling things as good or bad, right and wrong, up and down. And my whole feeling system comes right along with those that knowledge. 
And as we talked before, often that data is spotty. And what we're left with more is the feeling. And the feeling of not liking and not liking when you're sitting in your paradise and you don't like it. What kind of paradise is that? So this is how we can begin to understand also from that perspective of the judgmental mind. But this is where it came from back to that past thinking that I was just talking about is, is that we see something and we don't know what it is because all the leaves are green. I see a yellow leaf. I don't know what to make of it. So I'll say, oh, well, it's different than all the others. Therefore, it must be bad. That's what we would call the territorial instinct, that what I know I like and what I don't know that's unfamiliar may be strange or dangerous. So all the white people in this village are okay with each other, but if a black man comes into the village, he's strange, he smells bad or whatever, uh, he smells different to them, he's dressed in different clothes, they don't know him, what's their reaction to him? They're going to treat him like a foreigner. It's foreign to them. So if we encounter something in our paradise that's foreign to us, in the sense that we don't know it, are we going to turn it into a uh, something foreign into the sense of being afraid of it and not liking it? Because that's how we've been trained and instinctively operate. If we don't know something, we automatically are suspicious of it. Why? We don't know it. And all we have to do is, uh, all we have to do is to use past to try to make sense out of the present until we recognize that that's what we're doing and that's where our mistakes are made. And so when that new thing arises, we can't just go grab something out of the past and say, oh, I know what that is. When in fact, all we know is something old. And so now we're going to start allowing ourselves, because you've already got curiosity, to remain in a state of curiosity because you don't have to get an instant answer. You can let it be new and new and new and let it be unfamiliar. But the more you investigate it, the more familiar it will become. That's also a quality of the mind, that the familiarity, we don't like things that are brand new or strange. We haven't seen it before. And if we make a decision about it, then that decision will carry us, even though we stay familiar with that object and get it new. Or let us say that we actually do learn what it is uh, like in the reality of it. We will still operate like that first impression. And it's hard to come out of those first impressions because that's done instinctively. So this is why we practice Anapanasati is to see that we do that stuff moment by moment. When a thought comes up, what's the feeling that is associated with that thought? And can we change that thought so that we can guide our, our mind into the state of liking the way that we would want to? rather than being in a state of not liking it. 
because you do have a choice over how you feel. If you remember that you do have that choice, you have to remember that's what the sati is all about is to remember you can see something brand new as brand new and investigate it with curiosity rather than making a false claim of I know what it is because I know something before that was something like it. So if you can recognize that you're doing that, that's where this arising and falling and arising and passing away stuff that the Buddha is talking about is very, very handy. To be able to see things as they pop up, as they come up, so that you could be careful to not add your own garbage to it. And as things fall away, let them fall away, let them rot off all by themselves, and we can then relinquish it, let go of it and let it rot on its own. Let the dead bury the dead is one of the expressions. We've got a present to take care of. We've got new things to deal with. Let the, let the dead bury the dead. So um, when we um, reorient into this present moment, that's the big clue the reorientation to sati, to remember, to wake up, to be here now, to not process things the way that we used to process them. Now we can process them in a new way, get a new algorithm, get new data. We have to do it over and over and over and over again because it's training. And sometimes the training is the untraining of the way that we've already been trained wrong. It was I've seen situations to where it's easier for a new student to learn it brand new than it is for an old student who was doing it wrong to stop doing what he was doing wrong and start doing it correctly. It's easier to learn it right the first time than it is to unlearn the wrong way and then learn it the right way. And I've been through that with piano music, so I know that it's true. <laughs> I guess that's where also my questions about being productive come from. It's like I would like avoid uh, not spending. Well, it's it's kind of hard to not talk in those terms, um, but yeah. Ah, but in in the way of progress, then note the progress that you are making, as opposed to comparing it to the progress that you want to make. Mm -hmm. because the progress that you want to make is the past. The progress that you are making right now is real. It's real here now. And that in that regard, this the, the distinction then is, is that I'm talking about it in the sense of development of a skill. And the Buddha was very, very big on the quality of developing a skill, developing it, practicing it, enhancing it, a little bit more doing it over and over and over and over again so skill development in that regard is something like progress but progress has other qualities to it other than merely skill development and in fact it does not matter how uh, skilled that seamstress is if she doesn't pile up a great big pile of brand new suits in front of her boss she's not productive 
And so this is a distinction in the, uh, the difference between skill development and production. You don't really need to get anything done. That's a skill. <laughs> the skill is to not need to have anything done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. I mean, I can I can see that uh, the skill of like uh, that's also something you recommended is doing shorter sessions and mm -hmm. trying to go trying to get as stable or concentrated as with the longer ones. And I, I can see that happening. So where before I would take 30 to 40 minutes to get to a certain quieting of the mind and wholesome uh, feelings appearing. Now that's probably in 20 minutes uh, I mm -hmm. can I can get to the get, get to that point. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So watch how you're getting to that point. Be very curious about that. And as you start watching what's going on, you'll recognize that even that time is beginning to meld and modify yeah. and, and yeah. whatnot like that because your skills are developing and you're getting quick getting yeah. faster at being able to do it that's a, an important point so stay with the, the quality of skill development rather than the quality of progress that mm -hmm. mm -hmm. i've been in production long enough to be against progress <laughs> Okay. Well, so, off, to, off to practice then. <laughs> all right. Well, I hope that this talk has been of some value to you so that yeah. you can begin to see how the mind is working so that you know what to do with this arising and passing away stuff that we're talking about, especially in regard to being able to manage what kind of thoughts that you have. So you can just sit down and automatically just start off of, wow, isn't this peaceful? Wow, am I not relaxed or what? Wow, whatever state used to take me 40 minutes to get into, I'm in it right now. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was less than 20 seconds it took to say that. Yeah. <laughs> That's the skill development. No progress there at all. It's interesting that for me, it seems like, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm, uh, that it's, it doesn't seem to be very verbal lately. Like the, the distractions I have are more, for me, I think also have been before more bodily stuff. So uh, sensational, precise sensational stuff. So like fidgeting or not feeling comfortable or stuff like that. And that uh, I think that's sometimes more of an a thing for me. The verbal stuff seems to be relatively low occurrence uh, already. This. Right, exactly. But, but I also I also have relatively little explicit wholesome thoughts if that makes sense um, yes mo most likely yes and they it's better if they're repetitive mm -hmm. you see the monkey mind will go all over the place dancing jumping around making kind of a mess of a yeah. circle to where what we're what we're going to be doing is taking something small and just repeating it over and over and over and over again just like an in-breath and an out-breath and an in-breath and an out-breath, and an in-breath and an out-breath. Okay, so with that rhythm, then we can also have wholesome thoughts that if you say the, the same thought over or the same words over and over again, you begin to put boundaries around that monkey mind that's all over the place. 
Okay, so if you have just a few wholesome thoughts like everything is okay, wow, this is nice, I really like this moment, those kind of thoughts are in a tight little circle and we stay within that circle, then those thoughts have less and less weight as thoughts and more and more impact or weight as a state of experience or a state of the feeling so you begin to feel the way that you're talking because you're talking in a tight little circle of how nice it is nothing to worry about no dangers i can feel satisfied i can feel comfortable i can feel at peace i can feel safe okay and so we're actually going to talk ourselves in those few little thoughts. I, I am safe. This is so safe. This present moment, there's no problems at all. Isn't that marvelous? There is no problem. And so by telling ourselves that over and over again, we begin to feel like right now, there's no problems. I can actually relax my fear. I can drop the guard of the fear and just be in this state of relaxation. And you can basically talk yourself into that in one or two minutes, especially with the skills that you've already developed. So you can begin to, to get that very quickly. And then once you're in that state, now you can begin to investigate how you feel and how you want to feel. You can start investigating safety versus fear. You can begin to develop or uh, investigate comfort versus uncomfortable. Satisfaction in the mind versus unsatisfaction in the mind. A feeling of I can do this rather than the feeling of I'm not up to the task. So now it's time then to start paying attention to this arising and passing away of the thoughts and how they affect the arising and passing away of the feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I had, I had a very... feel the way that you want to because you're developing new feelings rather than having the old sewer of the old feelings that you didn't have much control over. Go ahead. Uh, I had I had a very like succinct uh, experience of that where I was meditating and there was a thought coming up and I could very much link it to then uh, bodily feeling as a, a sensation that uh, kind of followed that right on the heels of that uh, thought so I could see the connection there but that's yeah, I think that's only happened like a couple of times it's it's uh, quite doesn't happen often yet but uh, mm -hmm. I think I'm kind of getting an idea of when it happens here and there. Uh, uh -huh. Yes, watch closely. You'll find that it's actually not so hard to do if you're watching closely. If you want it, it's going to be really hard to do because yeah. the wanting it keeps us from being able to do it. Yeah. Because we want something and wanting something that we don't have is dukkha. And we have to find a way of coming out of the dukkha, coming out of the unwholesome wanting stuff, to be completely satisfied with the present moment so that now we can really do that watching of the wholesome, looking at the skills, looking at our investigation quality. 
If you don't mind, I'd like to finish the call because the postman has just came and my daughter is not here to uh, go get it. So All hang right. on a second. We'll see you later, okay? Thank you. Don't Sorry mind. about this, to, but I've got something that I got to do. It's all good. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye.